Hello and welcome to your Over the Farm Gate podcast brought to you by Farmers Guardian. I'm your host, Olivia Midgley. Don't forget, we'll bring you a new episode of the podcast every Tuesday. Just make sure you subscribe on your favourite platform. Well, finally, we've said goodbye to that long, dark winter and hello to longer days and hopefully some good weather. And the outdoors is just a buzz at the moment, isn't it? With nature really doing what nature does best. And we know farmers and land managers have a crucial role to play in nurturing the environment and the habitats which rely on it. But could so-called biodiversity net gain actually become a new income stream for farmers in the future? Well, this week we're speaking to two leaders in this field to ask how it all might work and who is going to benefit. Here's Jess Fredenberg. The world is facing a biodiversity crisis, but farmers can help and new UK legislation looks set to make that happen. When the Environment Bill passes through Parliament later this year, it will become a legal requirement from 2023 for all new developments in England to increase biodiversity by 10%. Thousands of hectares of land dedicated to biodiversity will be needed. And for farmers, this could offer a whole new income stream. It's envisaged that developers will purchase biodiversity credits from landowners through 30-year agreements. By passing this legislation, the government hopes to kickstart a whole new private biodiversity market. But there is still a lot of detail to be decided, not surprisingly. Least of all, how and who will manage all of this? Already, though, developers, land agents, charities, brokers and local authorities are preparing themselves and even entering agreements with landowners. So let's dive into this a bit more and find out what the benefits might really be and how farmers can prepare for this new market. I'm joined by Teresa Dent, Chief Executive of the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, which has been working on biodiversity agreements with farmer clusters, and David Hill, founder of Environment Bank, a UK company which is at the forefront of biodiversity accounting and offsetting agreements. So David, what's the potential of this new biodiversity net gain legislation in, in terms of biodiversity, but also in terms of you know, a possible income stream for farmers and rural landowners? We're finding that many planning authorities are now engaging with it. They were a little bit head in sand, but now they're coming out of that and they are starting to mobilise, but in a, in a variety of ways. So the potential is very, very significant. And the market's been estimated at between around 500 million to 1.2 billion pounds a year, which goes into the natural environment. Um, That is a new income stream for farmers and landowners. And and I'm absolutely convinced that actually the only way to do nature recovery in this country and fulfil the 500,000 hectare ambition of the Environment Bill is to have private investment into private landowning. Um, uh, That's slightly controversial, but the environmental NGOs really cannot deliver this. Uh, it's too it's it's too big. They don't have access to land, and they won't have access to the finance in the right way. So it is significant, and as an income stream for farmers, it will be um, far more significant than um, uh, sorry longer term, of course, than countryside stewardship, and, and the payment rates will be will have to be more than countryside stewardship pays. Is there any estimate at the moment as to how much land might actually be needed for this? Well, we've uh, we've estimated that it's probably in the order of 4,000 hectares a year at least. Um, So if you imagine that about 10,000 hectares of land is developed every year, 
Um, at the moment, there's a bit of a myth that um, the Biodiversity Net game will be, re will be fitted within the development side boundary. But when you do the financial figures on it, you realise that that locks up net developable area at huge cost. So um, they, the, the developers need a pressure valve which doesn't constrain them. The actual bigger market is around corporate natural capital accounting. So that's a much, much bigger market because it, it doesn't involve developers, doesn't involve planning authorities, it doesn't involve being close to development areas. So that's where, you know, large estates, for example, will benefit more by bringing forward land uh, they can put into um, what we call habitat banks. Yeah. OK. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll go into that a little bit more. Um, in a minute, but but now I just wanted to understand a little bit more where you are with this because I know Environment Bank, ha you know, is right at the forefront of this in terms of acting as a, a sort of middleman here between landowners and developers. Where we are now is that we're not really brokers. We are, we basically call ourselves investors in nature, and so we we we're just about we think to raise around £100 million to put into Habitat Banks in, in England. Um, and that and what we'll do there is to take on management contracts with landowners and farmers and, and guide them through it and stay with them. Uh, well, it won't be me personally, but stay with them for 30 years. <laughs> so I'm getting old. Um, <laughs> to, uh, to, uh, to deliver it on the ground. We're right at the cusp now of looking for... Um, large areas of land in England that are within 20 kilometres of development space, development going on. Um, and we've engaged with planning authorities and we've got a programme of rollout of habitat banks, which are sort of 40 to 100 hectare land parcels and sometimes bigger. And we will pay for the upfront, we'll take options on the land and we'll pay for the upfront capitalisation. And then we will, through the sale of the credits that we do to the developers, we will they pay, then pay the landowner and farmer under a management contract. So we're, um, you know, about to roll out quite a major uh, Habitat Bank programme. It's taken this long because of the risks around jumping in too early when we haven't yet got the mandated legislation, but we're finding incredible take-up at the moment. And developers, you know, they, they, they work on at least two-year development cycles, so they want to get their credits purchased up front or at least have options on those credits with us so that they can then go forwards and then they don't have biodiversity impacting on their time for delivery because it's a it's a long length can be a lengthy process development mm. as we as we all know and for anyone listening uh, can you explain what a habitat a habitat bank is because maybe some people don't know yeah definitely so um we've done up to date we've done a a, a number of smaller bespoke offset sites for specific development we've realized that those are actually really quite difficult to administratively set up so what we're going to do is to set up larger habitat banks that can provide credits, conservation credits, to multiple uh, developments in a particular area. So there'd be at least one in every planning authority area. They're areas of farmland largely. They might be ex-landfill sites. They might be ex-quarries or some where we can actually get the uplift in value. But they're large areas of arable farmland generally where they're at the moment relatively low level of biodiversity value. They might be grade three, grade four, um, but not necessarily so. And what we do is we, we work out how we raise conservation credits by doing management interventions at scale on that, on that parcel of land. So we can measure what the biodiversity unit 
value is of a particular parcel of land, we can then come in and set up a, a wildflower meadow, a wood meadow, a woodland, a wetland, or even a rewilded area, or even some combination of agri-environment type measures, uh, which isn't being paid by agri-environment scheme, to improve the, di the landscape diversity and therefore the, biodiver the biodiversity of that area. And then we lock in that land with a, with a landowner farmer with a conservation bank agreement uh, for a 30-year contract. So they get paid for 30 years, plus the capital up front. And then we actually sell the credits that are generated from that under a conservation credit purchase agreement to the developer who buys them. And then he can discharge his Section 106 agreements with the local authority in relation to the development. Teresa, I want to bring you in. I know the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust has done quite a lot of work with groups of farmers in terms of forming clusters. You know, what is the potential for farmers working together and collaborating to access biodiversity net gain income streams? Well, farmer clusters are something that the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust sort of invented, got going in 2012. And they are groups of farmers working together voluntarily, so friends and neighbours, to improve biodiversity and the environment on their own farms. And there are about 150 of them in England and covering about a million hectares. So I think they will be really useful for farmers when it comes to delivering this new world of biodiversity net gain and other forms of environmental offsetting. Um, it gives the farmers scale, so a whole farmer cluster can find space to plant trees that a single farmer just can't. A farmer cluster can negotiate a good contract in a single efficient transaction and share the gain. They can think holistically. They can offer much more variety in terms of environmental solutions than a single farm. And we are finding in GWCT that corporates, government agencies, water companies want to deal with farmer clusters. A single point of contact gives them access to many acres and for the farmers their real economies of scale, strategic holistic planning opportunities and a combined negotiating power. So we're sort of touching on what David mentioned earlier which I think was the idea of not just using land for biodiversity net gain income streams but, but multiple income streams. How do you see that as working. I think you've previously called it stacking. I really hope there will be opportunities for stacking and I certainly don't see why not. We are facing both a biodiversity crisis and a climate crisis. So if a farmer can provide both carbon sequestration and more farmland birds, more butterflies with a new hedgerow or a better managed hedge, then it fits with current government policy, which is for farmers to be properly rewarded for providing these public goods. So no one thinks it's wrong if a block of existing woodland got a replanting grant 20 years ago. It now produces timber for sale, venison for harvesting, and it might get rented out as a film location if it's got beautiful bluebells or primroses. So a farmer stacks now and I see no reason why he or she should not do so in future if the opportunity is there. How do you see 
this idea of stacking, um, particularly in terms of you know biodiversity net gain, how do you see that working in terms of elms? Is that something that you think will the government will allow? Well, again, I, I, I don't see why not. In the future, elms is going to be the bedrock, the broad acres, if you like, of alternative income on most farms. And at the moment, elms and biodiversity net game are separate potential funding streams for farmers in the future, one public, one private. And there's a lot of talk about this public-private mix. So my hope is they will stay separate and both be accessible. Farms need to be profitable in order to be able to afford to keep delivering the good environmental outcomes that government and society wants. I think it will happen. Of course, the other point is that it's not, again, stressing that it's not just going to be biodiversity net gain from development, but when corporates, the larger non-developer corporates, are going to be required to disclose their impacts on natural capital in, in the coming years. That's going to happen through financial reporting. And that's pressure from the investment community going to push that. Then they, those people are going to reduce their impacts, but they're still going to want to buy into land management interventions to offset the residuals. So we see that as a huge new market. And that's where you can start to um, you might be able to create a credit which is an aggregated credit of the different things. And I think that's the next step. What kind of money are we really talking about in terms of biodiversity net gain specifically? Obviously, it's very new at the moment, but I've, I've seen various figures floating around about you know, how much a credit might be worth. What kind of money are we talking about, David? Well, um, it, it ranges at the moment because it's not really stabilised, but um, and so it's it's a it's a tiny bit of a wild west. But that will all disappear as a normal in, in, in the normal mix of things. But it, it'll, it'll go from anything from about seven or eight thousand pounds of credit to sort of fifty, sixty thousand pounds of credit. And a, and a credit um, and, it, and a credit, a credit, sorry, a credit is a biodiversity unit effectively. But um, but what does that what does that translate into for a farmer? What does that translate into in terms of you know like their well, their land? In, 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 our, in our schemes, we would pay, um, it can be sort of three, four thousand pounds a hectare for capitalisation. And then, you know, anything from 500 to maybe even a thousand pounds a hectare per year for 30 years um, uh, for the management of interventions that are needed. And in some cases, maybe more. Uh, and so that's that's those are the sorts of figures that one's looking at, and of course, <clears throat> you know the, the the good thing for the farmer landowner is that that's a that can be if we can lock it down with our investors, that's a guaranteed income stream. We take all the risk. So and if it pays more than comes out future, and I think Theresa said that it's got to pay for farmers because we do, we don't want a uh, situation where it's just a grant. I think you've got to you've got to incentivise, and if all the money just simply goes on creating what you're creating, what is the incentive for the farmer and landowner? So we really want to see that, and and, and this should be possible with this, and ter- certainly with the corporate natural capital piece. Um, it should be possible with that too. But we haven't sold credits into that market as yet, but we're looking to do that fairly soon, I think. So, OK, I just wanted to talk about these these agreements on a practical level. Obviously, they, they are going to be uh, a 30-year term. We think that LPAs are going to be involved as well. Um, who is actually going to be managing all of this, though, in terms of making sure that 
those agreements are fulfilled? Because that 30 years is a really long time, isn't it? How is that, you know, how do people envisage that might happen or do we not really know that yet? We, we basically have monitoring <clears throat> and reporting built into our credit price. So we do that and then we report to the LPA or we will report the central government as required. So we, we, we basically take that on at our cost. Okay. So, okay, so let, let's have a little um, look at the, the contracts a bit more specifically then. Theresa, in, in your experience of working on, on this type of thing, you know, can you envisage any potential pitfalls when entering these sorts of agreements? I think the key things are this is very long term and so the the farmer has to make the right decisions for the long term. So I would say two things. First, a farmer needs to understand his or her biodiversity baseline and second, I would encourage a farmer to think three ways on this. So long term, strategically and holistically. So the biodiversity baseline, I mean, a farmer will get paid for delivering biodiversity net gain. You get paid for the amount you make it better than it is at the moment. And it's all worked out on a metric, which uses habitat type and habitat condition as a proxy for biodiversity. So the farmer isn't expected to count his lapwing. Um, what he's expected to provide is meadow habitat to a certain quality, and that creates a credit value. So the first thing is to understand what qualifying biodiversity ha assets you have on your farm, your hedgerows, your woodland, your meadows. Then what extra you can achieve without taking land out of food production because that's part of the strategic thinking, which I'll come back to. So filling in hedgerow gaps, planting small areas with trees. And then last, think about what additional habitat you could put in if you did take land out of production. And, and GWCT has been doing these sort of biodiversity audits on a number of estates for a while. We're very happy to help with them and assessing opportunities. The next thing is this thinking three ways thing. Because this is not like going into an agri-environment scheme which might only last five years or you've got a measure prescription you can move on your farm every year. This is a 30-year commitment. So you need to put yourselves in the shoes of your grandchildren and think, what do you want your farm or your estate to look like environmentally when your grandchildren are farming it? Where do you want the new hedgerows and tree planting and lovely meadows? Then think strategically about how you balance your role as a food producer with your new role of delivering environmental offset services. Where do you want that balance to sit and how should you evaluate it? And lastly, think holistically, especially if you're a big estate or if you're part of a farmer cluster. You don't have to do everything on your farm in order to create environmental gain across the landscape or uh, an ecosystem or a river catchment. You, different things can be done on different farms within a cluster that could add significantly to value overall. So you might do something near rivers and other people in that catchment up on the downland will do something different. So again, these are all things that GWCTB has been doing for a while and we're very happy to help groups of farmers 
do these sort of biodiversity audits and evaluate their opportunities and options, but in a strategic long-term way. Thank you. That's a really good, that's a really great list there of considerations. Um, David, David, is there anything you wanted to add to that in terms of how farmers can prepare themselves for this new opportunity? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think basically that there's two things. One is uh, you, they don't need to employ their own ecologists if there are other people that can do it. And we go and measure those uh, baselines and um, with the developers and with the farmers to make sure that we're delivering the right number of conservation credits. And that's key. But they also shouldn't necessarily worry if they're not within a long a distance from development areas. I mean, many are within the Midlands and the south of England. But there are also lots. So keep an eye on the corporate natural capital markets because that will enable those more remote land holdings to participate in these environmental markets in the future. You know, just keep an open mind as to what they can contribute. And one of the really important things for us is, that, is how we choose those farmers and landowners because we want the, those. I mean, Teresa mentioned thinking about what your grandchildren, they're the ones that we want, to be honest, because they're into the guardianship of the land. So they're really passionate about their land and about the conservation that's on it. And, you know, just because intensive farming hasn't enabled them to necessarily do as much as they might do, now is the time that they can do because they can be rewarded properly for it. Thanks to Chairs and to Theresa and David. These projects sound really exciting and we'll of course be following all the developments in this area on our Farmers Guardian platforms. Don't forget to check out fginsight.com. Well that's it for this week. I hope you're enjoying the spring-like weather while it's here. We'll of course be back with you next week with more. Goodbye for now. <laughs>